Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Princess and the Frog. I suppose you want a kiss. Kissing would be nice, yes? <laughs> I am Prince Nevin. I'm Maldonia. Prince? I was cursed by a dastardly witch doctor. One minute I am a prince, charming and handsome, cutting a rug, and then the next thing I know, oh, I'm tripping over these. Everyone thinks they know the story of the princess and the frog. You must kiss me. Excuse me? Please, princess. It will make me human again. Just... one kiss. Unless you beg for more. But no one knows what happened after the kiss. Until now. How did you get way up there? And how did I get way down here and all this... <gasps> this holiday season... In the tradition of Walt Disney's most beloved classics <laughs> comes the story behind the most magical kiss the world has ever known. This gonna be good! <laughs> Walt Disney Pictures, The Princess and the Frog. Come, we pack her. That's new. Bearing in mind that one of my dearest wishes is to be proven wrong on this front, welcome to our discussion on the last big-budget, feature-length, theatrically-released Disney event movie, hand-drawn and produced principally in 2D within their animated canon. Winnie the Pooh 2011, which we will discuss next week, was a far more low-key release, almost snuck out and bafflingly ejected from the aforementioned numbered canon in the UK, but not America, thus permanently lowering our numbers by one. So Moana is number 55 here, but 56 in the States. If that doesn't exclude it from the above description, I don't know what will. To put it in perspective, I uh, mentioned it to Neil Taylor, whose uh, young son loves Winnie the Pooh, and he went, Oh, they did one in 2011? Wow. Yeah. So I sent him Winnie the Pooh, which is what you got to do when people say that, because you've got to help them. You've got to, you know. (laughs) It's your responsibility. On that same day, I also sent it to James Batchelor for his kid. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm like... uh, Distributing uh, Winnie the Pooh all by your lonesome. I'm like a Johnny Winnie the Pooh seed. (laughs) (laughs) The Princess and the Frog, however, is one of my favorites. One of my very favorites. And the fact that we've spent so much time on Disney is, you know, kind of speaks very highly of me putting this way up the top. It is achingly beautiful and endlessly fun with lovable characters and the kind of Disney trope-defying characterization and narrative movements that Frozen was roundly praised for some years later. 
It stands as a testament to the amazing abilities of the 2D animators to exceed their forever celebrated influences. It cost $105 million. It made $267 million. Relative to Tangled the next year at 591, Wreck-It Ralph the next year at 471, and Frozen north of a billion because of that one song. He's just a bit of a fixer-upper. He's had a couple of buds. Big, big fan. <laughs> big fan. Love that one. Big hit. No, I don't. That's my least favorite. <laughs> <laughs> big Hero 6 at 657 million and Moana at 564 million. <sighs> what with Winnie the Pooh only netting $50 million on a $30 million budget, it was abundantly clear that as much as we all love 2D Disney animation and cherish those memories, general family audiences would rather watch more contemporary, more technical fare. The same year as The Princess and the Frog, Up made three times that at the box office with $735 million. It also netted Best Animated Film of that year. And I think that was mostly on the merit of the absolutely astonishing beginning, which the rest of the film can't possibly match. <laughs> However, Ice Age Dawn of the Dinosaurs made $886 million. That's nearly four times as much. Even Monsters vs. Aliens made more, with $381 million. Hands up if you remember that one. I hadn't until you just said the name again. Yep. It's one of those uh, movies that look incredibly generic. They come out, everyone goes to see them, and then everyone just forgets them before they even get home. Coraline cost $60 million, and it made $124 million. And that was the most successful Leica have ever been. And that was in 2009, the same year. Winnie the Pooh in 2011, like I say, cost 30, made 50. The wonderful French-Irish collaboration, Secret of Kells, cost 8 and made an appalling $0.7 million. Oof. Now, obviously, a lot of this can be pinned on distribution, but there is a certain, like, cinemas will book what they think will sell. The general public have spoken in voices loud and clear. They do not want what they perceive as old animation. The only proviso one should ever even attempt producing a 2D animated movie is if you have the, an enormous amount of money, like Disney have, and can afford to lose some to keep the art form alive, like Disney can and Disney should. It might also be a good idea to put some money into a shrewd marketing campaign to remind people why pencils, ink and paint are part of everybody's cinematic past. Even children born after 2009 will be shown Aladdin, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella. And yet they actually did this with Princess and the Frog and Winnie the Pooh. They reminded people in those lovely trailers. And people don't even know that Winnie the Pooh came out. So now that this lamentable situation has been re-established, because we've said it again and again and again in the past few episodes on the, the, in the Disney canon, let's talk about one of Disney's finest and most unsung achievements. We're going to proceed as though everyone listening has seen this film. We're not going to explain what happens, because you need to have seen this film. If you haven't yet, go buy it and see it. Treasure that disc and listen to us afterwards. This is a solid gold essential. It's up there with Beauty and the Beast, Mulan, and The Lion King for me. And as you'll find out next week, Tangled too. And then sometime after that, Moana. The evening star is shining bright. So make a wish and hold on tight. There's magic in the air. 
It is very loosely based on The Frog Princess by E.D. Baker, published in 2002. Disney took the accidental double froggy transformation and the swamp, and that's about it. (laughs) They very deliberately set out to deliver the world's first fully-fledged African-American black lead, Disney Princess, and give it a particular cultural background and musical flair. So they set it in 1920s New Orleans, a city that had been just hit by Hurricane Katrina in 2005, only a few years previously. So in many ways, this was an effort to recapture the spirit of that place uh, that at the time had been wounded, damaged, and laid low. It did, however, cause controversy, even in their attempts to try to reach out. The name The Frog Princess, which is what it was going to be called based on the the book name, sounded like it was a slur on the French. I'm not sure what focus group came up with that, but, uh, yep, okay, apparently so. Okay, Uh, I don't think that ever would have even occurred to me. Also, in 2009, Prince Naveen was originally going to be white, and that upset some people. That's right, folks, interracial couple in Disney upset some people. You're hearing all this stuff, stuff, by the way, so, yeah, okay. I mean, you know, he's actually from a uh, made-up country of Maldonia, which is uh, was east of the moon and west of the sun, or the other way around. And he gave it a, a kind of a, a French twist to a Brazilian uh, accent. So uh, he's not African-American, but he's brownish, so that's okay. And I think the incentive there is to, like, if you're making an African-American princess, then why not make also, like, a, a colored-skinned prince as well like i can see i think so like the complaint there i don't think is people being upset oh you can't have an interracial relationship because technically they are still a interracial relationship but like it's race is a very tense topic it's in the states i imagine even slightly more so than in uh than in europe so okay not europe at large in Oh, that's a dumb state statement in general. Let me. Uh, it's let me okay. Back you can, up. Uh, I'll just. Uh, I will read again what it says on Wikipedia just to clarify this one because I could have read this wrong. The choice to have a black heroine's love interest be a non-black prince, which upset opponents of on-screen interracial romance. Oh wow! I've, yeah, I sometimes forget that those people still exist. Yeah. So I mean, on the one hand, people who are like, no, you know, she, it, we need to have a black prince as well. I'm totally with those people as well. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that Simba is the king of Africa and he's played by goddamn Matthew Broderick, the whitest kid in the world. Um, (laughs) You know, as I said uh, last week when I was doing the edit, I think I said uh, at the time it was like Cuba Gooding Jr. Suffice to say, I cannot wait for Donald Glover to turn up and be the best Simba. Anyway, but uh, yeah, this is their, their first black prince. But the idea that Tiana ending up with a white prince would have upset people. I mean, it would. I can't say the words because it's a children's podcast. But uh, moving on from there, um, Tiana's original name was going to be Maddie. And she was going to be a chambermaid until somebody pointed out to Disney. That sounds like Mammy. And it is a traditionally slavery and indeed post-slavery position for a girl to be shoved into. So do you want want to have a think about that one? And uh, have her maybe work in a restaurant which is very relatable to, you know, modern girls as well. I think the waitress profession works better with her storyline as well. Because oh, yeah. as a chambermaid, I mean, she's she's pushing uh, the limits of her job 
to get tips to get where she needs to be. Yeah. And that would have been very difficult to do as a chambermaid. Yeah. You basically, the other thing Agreed. is that you have to wait on a white woman hand and foot under those circumstances. That basically means that Charlotte would have been her mistress. So, yeah, they dodged a bullet there. Very notably, a year or so into production, they got Oprah Winfrey to come in as a technical consultant. Basically, Oprah, make sure this is cool for us, please. Very good idea. <laughs> hence, hence, she's playing Eudora. So, I mean, frankly, if you're a, let's face it, largely white studio making a uh, you know very expensive production and you're going to go to 1920s New Orleans and, and have a largely black cast... You want to get someone who's someone with her finger on the pulse. She may not be at ground zero of African American affairs, but at the same time, at least they ask someone who is a smart, brilliant woman. So, um, yeah, on the right track. However, Dan, you got a thing about New Orleans, which kind of works in with the controversy side of things here. Yeah, I mostly just wanted to bring it up because I've it's a complaint that I've read a lot and i think that there is some merit to it even though it's not something that i like i'm not the ideal person to be bringing this stuff up even but i I think it is still worth pointing out like we have to talk about it because we can't all like leave it to the multiracial podcasts to actually notify people about this stuff yeah like it's a legit thing to bring up i think like the the sort of things that you're that you've been bringing up, like they've changed the name from Maddie and changed her profession from being a chambermaid and stuff like that. But this movie is a real tight rope of tricky topics in general. Yeah. Like introducing the first African-American princess, which is a great thing, but it means that like you, you, it's important to do that right. But like just choosing the setting of new Orleans in 1920s, Jim Crow era, like that's a complicated, <laughs> ugly era of American history to set a Disney princess film in. And while I do think that they managed to avoid most of the major missteps, which is great and just like kudos to them for that, I I think it is inevitable that setting a film in this era means you are going to be you are going to do something wrong. Or like you are you're going to have to make a lot of very hard decisions. Like, and on the positive side, I love that racism is not completely ignored in the movie. Like, it's not the primary focus by any means, and there's some problems that can emerge from that. But the effects of racism and the evils of capitalism aren't completely scrubbed out of the movie, which is, I think it's great. Like, we see a world in which Tiana and her father have relatively small dreams compared to their wealthy white friends, but they have got to work three times harder to achieve them. And three times like, harder than Charlotte works. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like exact mathematical Charlotte figure you got works. There. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, carry like, on. I get what Charlotte you lives she Charlotte lives in luxury and she dreams that traditional Disney princess dream of marrying a prince and living happily ever after. Tiana just wants to open a business and mm. has basically given up everything in her life to pursue that. And when she finally gets within like spitting distance of it, of achieving that dream, and can finally just afford a down payment on a building that is snatched out of her hands by another buyer who could afford to just buy the place outright and by realtors who comment on her background as a factor in the decision so like racism's presence is there tiana and her family live in a small rundown home and she rides crowded buses to her three jobs just like her dad had to and while like big daddy and charlotte the characters aren't portrayed as cruel which i also like that that's how they're portrayed 
they don't really seem to notice how hard their friends are having to live just to get by. Mm. And like even Facilier is a man just scraping by with voodoo parlor tricks, and he clearly resents people like the Leboeufs who just comfortably coast by and throw their money at frivolities mm. while he just struggles to make ends meet. All of that said, though, and again, I'm, I'm hardly the most qualified person to make this point, but I'm going to try. This movie does not even come close to presenting a picture of what life for a poor black family would be like in the 1920s South. 1920s, Jim Crow is a thing. Segregation, still a major thing. Friendships between rich whites and poor blacks like Tiana and Charlotte's families was not common. Can I pause uh, you there for a second? Um, Jim yeah. Crow is not something people know about in England, and we do have a, a large contingent of uh, English audiences. Are you able to put your finger on what that entails? Ooh, uh, let me try <laughs> to Wikipedia. Hang on. I, I was going <laughs> to. I do I not will, want to get I will this help one. you on this one. Thank you. Uh, let's see. So. Uh, hang on. Jim Crow was the name of the racial caste system which operated primarily but not exclusively in southern and border states between 1877 and the mid-1960s. Basically, civil rights was the thing that put an end, uh, officially put an end to this, although the sentiment remains to this day. Jim Crow was more than a series of rigid anti-black laws. It was a way of life. In other words, um, coloreds served in the rear. No dogs, no Negroes, no Mexicans. Separate drinking fountains, separate toilets, just segregation i was gonna yeah, say it, so basically it was the framework of laws that um that segregation was based on pretty much yeah it was it was by law enforcing it keeping black uncolored people down even though slavery was like had been ended decades ago by the time of this uh film takes place in yeah. uh it's like colored people were still rigidly kept down by a series of laws and by other laws not being enforced like this this is a time in which lynchings were still really common they are like, a stone's throw away from mississippi this hive of scum and villainy at the time um, yeah I, I, louisiana gonna, wasn't yeah. in a great place either by compare like even by comparison like even like we said earlier that the marriage between tiana and naveen was technically an interracial marriage that was illegal back then they would have been like they could not own and run a business in the middle of town and, like, they would be in big trouble. <laughs> I was going to say, would Tiana even have been allowed to own property, even if she had the money? It depends on what state you're that you are in because the laws did vary state to state. But uh, I, if there was not a formal law in Louisiana around that, I think there would – it would definitely have been harder and there would have been more hoops she'd have had to jump through. It's quite subtly put across, but it would appear that all the interracial mixing in the crowd scenes is white people deigning to wander into the black quarter, if that makes sense. Yeah. If you look at it. The POC population, that's probably the best way of putting it at this point, you know, are not infringing upon the white sections, and it's certainly never pointed out. So when Tiana's got her uh, restaurant at the end, the white people are coming to a black restaurant rather than the other way around. And there are some subtle ways in which the, uh, and I don't know if they're even intentional or not, but there are a few subtle ways in which some of those realities are still presented in the film. Like in the masquerade ball that the Labouffs throw, if you look, you'll see that the only people not wearing masks are uh, like the, hired help most of which are like colored folk it's pretty much all of the colored people are not wearing masks which i mean at that time i believe it was illegal for black people to cover their face with a mask 
So, like, that would have been an illegal thing for them to do, which also casts an interesting little light on the fact that Facilier is in that crowd and he is wearing a mask, a white mask even. Like, I don't know, that's interesting just as a side thing, but I don't know if it's on purpose because it's just, it, it feels like Disney was, like, they're in a really tight spot. They've got a, they've picked a very difficult era to portray. And if you portray the reality of it, it's really hard to, it's really hard to make a children's film that portrays the reality of this time and setting. But if you don't portray the reality of that time and setting, then you really sugarcoat it and you can risk skewing people's perspective and understanding of what the reality of that history was. And most of all, by sugarcoating this time and place and uh, presenting a 1920s segregated South where the secret to success for a poor black person is just to work hard enough and pay your dues to the system, which is stacked against you in every way, and until that system decides to reward you, that's tone deaf at best. <laughs> like, well, you, you could marry a prince who will be your benefactor. Oh, wait, that's worse. <laughs> yeah. I have to admit, one of the things. Oh, that... they won't allow the marriage legally. Sorry, sorry, you can't do that. One of the things that always baffled me just a little bit is the fact that the the solution they come up with is for uh, Naveen to marry Charlotte so that he will be entitled to her money so that he can then give that money to Tiana. Even a black prince needs to marry a white girl, daughter of a sugar merchant. Charlotte is her friend. Has it never occurred to Charlotte to lend her the money for the restaurant? And that's the one thing that I think Dan kind of pointed out just earlier, that they are oblivious to her plight. It feels like Tiana would never ask for it, Mm. but she ruddy well should have done. She said, like, Charlotte, your father is spectacularly rich. I need an amount of money for this restaurant so small it would not even really show up in his expenses. Mm. Could he please lend me that amount of money and I will set up a uh, a system whereby I pay back every penny of that with interest if he needs to, which of course he will charge her a lot less than the banks. Further than that, whether Tiana was too proud to ask, whether Tiana did not feel it was her place to ask, Charlotte, as a good friend, should have noticed. There's, of course, thus no reason to have the story there. (laughs) It's a very short story about a black girl, you know, basically uh, getting a loan. But (laughs) (laughs) which, in and of itself, could make quite an interesting movie. Yeah, I've said a lot of negative things on this point, but like I do, uh, as much as I appreciate that some level of hardship is represented, and that Tiana and her entire family are awesome role models for literally anybody. (laughs) They are great people. And as absolutely vital as it is to see a Disney film with an African-American lead, finally. And I think there is some value in seeing characters from different races and backgrounds portrayed having positive and warm, normal relationships. So it's, it's a bit of a push and pull on this with me, but the degree to which the hardships and realities of black life in 20s America are just smoothed over... I when that issue is brought up, I can't argue it because it's like I think it is a tripping point that was inevitable simply by choosing this setting. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right, Dan. It's ultimately it's an absolutely valid point. Um, and I also think that it's Disney and Disney idealizes. And sometimes yeah. that's Disney or Charlotte. Kind of. They, they can be overly romanticizing about things. Um, yeah. Like, I understand why you don't want to address lynchings in your princess film. 
And I should also point out that despite everything I just said, like I adore this movie as well. It is one of my favorite Disney films as well. I, I think this is a similar situation to the Pocahontas issue. I think this is a better film than Pocahontas is, but it is it does still deal with that. Like, this is a tricky part of American history that we're just going to kind of glaze over, huh? It's not quite so bad as Pocahontas because um, as, uh, to date, black people have not been nearly wiped off the map. Um, not for lack of trying. Yeah, it's not for lack of trying. and uh, Yeah. It, it is truly a, a, a difficult time to be alive if you give a toss about anything right now. <clears throat> okay, so now we've brought everything down. <laughs> this, okay, Dan warned me that that was going to be heavy, and he wasn't wrong, but it's totally, totally valid. Mm. Absolutely pertinent and um i mean even like if nothing else they got flack for um they set out to basically they saw new orleans they wanted to make something nice about new orleans and they were accused of capitalizing on the plight of new orleans yeah and uh, basically exploiting them specifically of exploiting black people i was gonna say damned if you do damned if you don't it is possible that with black panther they may do in a way that does not leave them damned they did. And Black Panther went on to make $1.3 billion. You know, a be largely black production yeah. with maybe, you know, uh, uh, one of the biggest, like, major black casts of any movie of this budget ever made. Mm-hmm. That's huge. And it's Disney. And so, you know, they're always moving forwards, just baby steps. And they are a force for good, but they are also naive and... um they kind of have to be a force for good. They have more money than God right now. Yeah. If they were a yeah. force for evil, they'd be destroying the world. <laughs> Triple threat. They got their own Death Star. One per movie. <laughs> anyway. Since the dawn of time, man has wanted to block out the sun. <laughs> In the Southland, there's a city way down on the river. Sugar barons and the cotton kings 
Rich people, poor people, all got dreams. Dreams do come true in New Orleans. Let's get back to the film because we've got a lot to talk about. And, and watching this film for the first time in a couple of years now, I think. I've, uh, I've, I think I've held off on purpose because we were doing this, Dan. I was like, right, uh, so I'll, I'll get to The Princess and the Frog when we cover The Princess and the Frog. And I'll a couple of years too. went by. <laughs> and now uh, watching it, it filled me with just this powerful um, melancholy is the best way of putting it. Just this, this, this aching joy and sadness at the same time. It I got was, the same thing. Yeah, know, just, just the celebration of it. Th- this is so beautiful. It's the. It, I mean, you could probably point to this and say it's the pinnacle of what Disney could do with two D animation, and you would be able to maybe point to a couple of other things from the nineties, and maybe some sequences from something like Treasure Planet, which are you know really breathtaking, but just don't coalesce into the, just the one film that that this does. I mean, this is. St- the things that they do with light and the things that they do with with paint it's breathtaking and it takes you back to uh, the, the the two of the the films that they very specifically were, in, uh, were informed on the style of uh, were Lady and the Tramp uh for New Orleans and Bambi for uh, the for, uh, for the swamp and um, I'm not sure if we mentioned this way back when we did the podcast on it but the idea of the forest in Bambi was not to draw and paint a forest, but to draw and paint what it felt like to be in a forest. So it yeah. was, um, I mean, almost impressionism. Mm. And I, I, more defined than that, but um, it's it's got that beautiful painterly style to the backgrounds and these incredibly vibrant characters uh, and, and the movement of them. When we, you know, watch all the extras and, and, and they'd gone back to the Sleeping Beauty style sort of way of, and, and, and Cinderella style of, like, getting live actors to actually act out the scenes for references for the uh, animators. And specifically the dances and stuff, you know, you've got um, Dr. Facilio doing his Cab Calloway and this incredibly bendy man sort of, you know, acting this out on stage so that um, the, the animator had... Uh, let's just see who Facilio was. Uh, Bruce W. Smith had someone to be able to, to sort of you know, look at. And, and I was saying to Sharon that physical performance is something that comes alive in film in uh, almost better than any other medium. Even on stage, when you're there watching the person do those incredible things, almost always you're from a distance. You've got people's heads in the way. They, you know, they're, they're indistinct. You're having to squint. You're at an obtuse angle. They move to a different part of the stage. On screen, on the big screen, you can see every movement of their body in this incredible clarity and, and focus. It's just something that, I mean, being on stage, the one thing that that has going for it, I mean, the, the multiple things that that has going for it, but sort of like being part of a crowd and appreciating the incredible choreography of being able to get all of those people together to get this thing done flawlessly, all in one go in a sort of organic way, that's something that cinema can never claim to have. Even for those incredible tracking shots where they get everything right. The physical performance and the way that... Each animator took those reference movements and transposed them into these characters who move in this wonderful, like, physical, almost sensual style. It's, 
what I'm seeing here is the people underneath. Um, that was one of three things which particularly struck me about this, and in, in terms of I agree with you completely about it being the pinnacle of what the Disney style of 2D animation was able to become. The movement of the characters, which is so real because it's got that physical movement reference from the, the performers that did the dances and, and gave them something to work from. Um, the other thing that really struck me about this was the fabrics. Mm-hmm. There is a, a visual rendering of texture in this that I don't think has ever been as good. Even in films where they do it incredibly well, the, um, Beauty uh, and the Beast, Bell's Dress Bell's in Beauty Dress, and the yeah. Beast is, is amazing, but they really refine it in this. Things like you can see the 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 shininess of the satin on Charlotte's pink dress at the mm. um, the masquerade ball. You can almost feel the rough texture of um, the glitter on the blue dress that Tiana ends up in. Mm. Everything looks so... Um, I don't want to just say textured again, but there's a real feeling Touchable. to it. Yeah, t- exactly. Yeah, like you could get in Touch there it and it would just feel like shiny cell <laughs> drawings. It would, it would feel like, you know, a collage or something. I, I do agree with what you guys were saying, though. This is, I think, the most, if not the most beautiful, vibrant 2D movie Disney ever made. It is up there. And I think that is owing partially to the fact that they had all of their best 2D, most of their best 2D talent, all focused on this one film, as opposed to spread out over a couple of different concurrent 2D projects like they did in the Renaissance era. But also just because of, like, five years of technological growth, especially in the realm of, like, digital and computer animation work, and the fact that they had to rebuild the studio essentially from the ground up means that they had that all of their old pipeline, all of their old tools were really noticeably out of date. So as long as they were rebuilding everything from scratch anyway, they might as well try to integrate some tools from outside the studio like Photoshop and Toon Boom and other third party stuff. It was a really smart move on their part. And I think it really shows just the difference five years of tools development can make because just. Those backgrounds and the the texture of the clothing and stuff like that, a lot of that is owing to the digital abilities of like the abilities that digital 2D can give you. For me, it really the look of this film is largely owed, I think, to further pursuit of digital tools. And uh, like I was saying, they're going to rebuild the studio, rebuilt the pipeline, got their uh, whole uh technological setup going with a lot of their old animation masters like like Bruce Smith and Nick Ranieri and Andreas Deja and just uh, Ruben Aquino like all, all of these uh, renaissance era greats all working with new to oh, Eric Goldberg too I can't believe I forgot Eric Goldberg uh, just all of these great uh, talented animators working with some new tools like they, they experimented with uh, allowing the animators to draw directly into the computer using Cintiq tablets a lot of them understandably being somewhat old school did not take to it <laughs> uh, mm. and I think they ended up just going back to pencil and paper but I, I feel like with uh, Winnie the Pooh I remember hearing that some of them did go ahead and make that jump to the Cintiq but like, this film is just super vibrant to look at and they can they can do a lot of things with moving light and shadow and texture that digital 2D allows you to do much much more easily you're not, you're not having to paint the texture of a cloth 
or shading on a building or on like light playing on leaves in a bayou you're not having to paint that light frame by frame mm. and get all getting all of the little imperfections in just just frame to frame that that would come with your just hand-drawn rendering you can do, you can do lots of fancy compositing like essentially like 3d compositing tricks using light in those spaces by by this point 3d has also developed to such a degree that they are able to integrate 3d objects and models seamlessly and you can barely tell like the the riverboat that uh our characters all ride back to uh, new orleans on is a 3d object that just looks for all the world <laughs> like a 2d object hmm. like you it does not stand out in any way and in some ways i wonder if the like the disinterest in handcrafted 2d animation at disney is somewhat comes on from the fact that they're doing it so well that it doesn't even look handcrafted anymore like it it just looks beautiful and perfect let's not forget that a lot of this was spurred on by the new creative director of disney at the time john lassiter like the rest of us lassiter believed that 2d was the soul of disney animation and especially now that disney owned pixar and pixar was going to still be putting out 3d stuff i think he saw lots of good reason to have 3D is pretty well covered in the Disney company. We can we can still make these 2D films. And I think even he was as surprised as anybody at how modestly this movie performed. Yeah. I think he went into this as starry-eyed as any of us would. And I mean, he did That's the, I guess that's the sad thing. He did everything right. Yeah. Like they did uh, the trailers for this had do you remember Snow White being kissed by the prince and waking up? Do you remember Sleeping Beauty being kissed by the prince and waking up? There's a theme here. Do you remember say, Cinderella? Do you remember unconscious princesses being molested by princesses? <laughs> <laughs> it's possibly not the mode you want to go okay. for. Do you remember Cinderella? Do you remember The Little Mermaid? Do you remember Beauty and the Beast? Well, we're going to do one of those again. And audiences should have sat up and gone, I am so sick of woolly mammoths. Yes, Bring it on. <laughs> this should have made $750 million. Should have made uh, Ice Age money. But yeah, it made a third of that. Frozen made a lot, a lot of its dollars because it challenged Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, old Disney. It questioned and critiqued Disney's classical handling of princesses. And what people didn't get from the marketing is that this film does as well. Like, oh. it, it's, it is disheartening that this was the dream scenario where they like rebuilt the department, hired all the best animators, reversed all the old leadership decisions, did all of it right. And at the, and the big comeback didn't work. And hmm. I don't know if a movie like this is ever going to be attempted again, because I think this was a, for better or worse, I think Lasseter and Catmull took some lessons away from this movie. Not only did they dial back on 2d and I think found that, okay, we believe in this, but apparently, like, the world is not, like, with us on that. But I think they also learned a lot in terms of film marketing. Because, like, as much as we have, like, on this podcast, crapped on a lot of marketing department decisions, and uh, especially in the Renaissance era, in this scenario, Lasseter and the higher-ups ignored a lot of marketing department advice to make what I would think would be good decisions, like... uh for, but for one, making a 2D film in the first place, the marketing, like when 3D animated films are the hottest ticket in town is kind of a uh, departure from marketing wisdom. But 
sticking with Princess and the Frog as the title, even after marketers insist that that's going to limit their audience. Mm. Like, I think I mean, this was a case where marketing, I think, was right. And I think this is why from here on you're going to see Disney films titled and marketed very tactically in it, ways that appeal to boys and girls very clearly. So Rapunzel becomes Tangled, Snow Queen mm. becomes Frozen, advertising focuses on fun and comedy more than romance and making anything feel super prin- princessy. I I think you see that turn in uh, Lassiter's approach here. Guarantee if they'd called this green and focused in the advertising <laughs> on the fun animal companions, they would have made at least twice as much. Mm. See, I was going to say they could have called it mucus. No. <laughs> no, that's a terrible idea. But focused <laughs> on the slime. All it does <laughs> is shoot you. <laughs> focused on the slime. Brilliant. Well, it helped Ghostbusters, colon, answer the call. Let's talk about the Princess and the Frog itself. Uh, Tiana, as a character, they went out of their way to make her a very different kind of princess. Can you guys, because again, I don't want to just be talking myself, can you guys list ways in which Tiana is different from Cinderella and even Belle and Ariel? Well, for a start, she's not actually a princess, but then neither was Cinderella. She's one of the things that appeals to me the most about Tiana is that she has a a very clear goal in mind and it doesn't involve snaring a chap. Hmm. Um, almost the opposite. She's almost like, not only will I not let anyone help me, it's not on my goal list. Yeah. It's actually going to harm my it's chances. Gonna, it's going to hold me up and, and distract me from what I really want to do. And although I think the closest they'd come before this in terms of having a, a an aim that wasn't, you know, get out of my terrible life and, and find a prince. Hmm. Um, Belle didn't necessarily want a prince. She just wanted someone to understand. No, that's what I mean. Belle was going to be the, the other example, but her goal is still very vague and undefined. Basically, Belle wants to be left alone to read her book. <laughs> Which, you know, I, I can <laughs> empathise with that particular goal, frankly. Hmm. Um, but I think Tiana was the first uh, princess who had a very specific aim. If you discount Nala wanting to, you know, save the Pride Lands, obviously. Yeah. It's a very identifiable goal, as like I said earlier. Like, it's something that uh, young people could, like, this is a movie that teenagers can watch and go, yeah, I'm working my ass off right now. Two jobs. I understand that. I, I like that she is a really grounded character. Mm. Like, she does not, she's not got, and this ties into what Sharon was saying, she doesn't have a dream of finding a prince or being whisked away to a castle or really anything on a grand fantasy scale. And, I think that uh, it, it ties into that Disney st- beginning to subvert their old tropes a, a little bit early because as much as this film is trying to recapture the nostalgia and the magic of Disney classics, like for 50 plus years, Disney's had this tagline, when you wish upon a star, dreams come true. But this movie says in the opening minutes, don't get me wrong, wishing, wishing's great great to have a dream but that star can only take you part of the way you're gonna have to chase that dream and work and sacrifice it's not just gonna magically happen and tiana is a character who has taken that to heart almost to a fault it's not so much that they um started doing that early as that nobody bloody credited them for it until 2012 when was uh frozen 
13. 2013. 2013. I mean, they break that mold with Wreck It Ralph. They break that mold with uh, Tangled. Yeah. You know? That's true. Even Winnie the Pooh has some subversive stuff in there. But um, the When You Wish Upon a Star being very deliberately challenged, that, as you say, Dan, that goes right back to their second movie. Yeah. Pinocchio. And it's. Da, 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 da. Is there that? That's the Disney theme. Mm-hmm. That's literally. And I was. I've said literally too many times. Uh, <laughs> I, I was talking to Sharon about how it's. Disney is this. In many ways, this contradictory entity where they're selling you this yearning and wishfulness, but in this incredibly. I don't want to say calculated, but like they're measured. They know what the hell they're doing, like with the marketing of this thing and with the positioning of this thing. And they um, they're very careful about what they put out. They're they're, they're less experimental than they might seem. Mm. That's not necessarily a bad thing because you need a fixed point. And if the fixed point is progressive, which they are, even if it's only mildly so in comparison to other like fist pounding kind of uh, you know revolutionary stuff. Um, the fact that they're handling Marvel and like just edging towards maybe we could have a female superhero, maybe we're going to have a, a superhero of color. We got it, you know, in the works. Like I say, it's baby steps, but like if you consider Disney to be the baseline of society's progress, then you know, including racist depictions of crows in Dumbo in a kind of affectionate, we don't know we're being racist way. Is I suppose Disney being nice? Question mark. Nineteen <laughs> fifties <laughs> being nice, anyway. That was Dumbo, so that was <coughs> forty, like one or two. Oh, I'll okay. just double check. The, the early forties yeah. being nice, then. I think the well, I mean, you've got the par- interestingly enough, the parallel between you know, wishing on a star is not going to get us our two uh, D hand drawn animated movie. We're going to have to work really, 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 really hard to get what we want out of this one. Mama, I don't have time for dancing. That's just gonna have to wait a while. Ain't got time for messing around. And it's not my style. This old town can slow you down. People taking the easy way. I know exactly where I'm going Getting closer and closer every day And I'm almost there I'm almost there People down here think I'm crazy But I don't care Trials and tribulations I've had my share
Yeah, so you've you've kind of got the parallel between Tiana having to put in all this work to get what she wants and the Disney team having to put in all that work to get where they wanted to with this one. I've always had this this argument that fairy stories are your cautionary tales. It's the um you know the the stories that you that were the teaching tools of the way back when, when fairy tales were all there was. And there seems to be a persistent theme throughout a lot of Disney to the point where I find it a wee bit confusing when it's not, um, that they have this be true to yourself uh, motto that is pretty much there in some form or another in the vast majority of their movies. And I thought it was really interesting that they start with this heroine who has had this... You, you see her as a tiny child, so you, you get to see what the true herself is, that, that core of the, the little girl who has this dream of the, um, the restaurant where everybody will come and, and share food and share companionship and, and love. And then how that's got shaped and affected by the fact that she's had to work so hard for so long. Um, and I, I think it doesn't, it doesn't seem so much like a bad thing because ultimately she is able to work her way through that, but it does almost seem like it's a, it's a shame that she's had to work so hard because that has impacted on her her not the the dream and the outcome it's but hard the why her. yeah the the reason for it and that's the the part of it that she's lost she's kind of that element of herself that responded to her dad's encouragement to share that food and and bring people to your porch and and that's what it's about it's that you know the food is an important part of it but she has slightly isolated herself exactly it's the reason not completely she still has friends but they're friends that she's constantly too busy to hang out with absolutely this idealized version of the restaurant she's surrounded by all of these guests she's not really interacting with any of them she's dealing with the food and she's um you know laying the tables and she's She's enjoying everybody else's enjoyment, but she's, she's not organizing. Part of it. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's. Whereas at the end, she's dancing and she's really exactly. getting exactly. Yeah. But why? What happens for that to ha- to to be the scene? Naveen reaches down and pulls her up onto the stage. Yeah. He's the the balance that she needs to get back to her true self, and she is for him as well. And that's obviously part of the the point but we'll come to that when we talk about Naveen. Do you guys find it hard to pick a favorite character in this movie? Because yes. I really do. Absolutely. They're all so also, good. I, I don't usually gush over the clothes, but my God, her clothes are incredible. <laughs> oh, they're fantastic. Every single one of them. Yeah. Even like her, I love the fact that when you first meet her, her kid dress is green. It's bright green. And it just sort of, it's state. And, and then the dress in her, her wedding dress is green and mm. her uh, and dancing her, even dress. Even her white wedding dress is, is crisscrossed with green ribbon. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of dresses, I also I like that scene where Lottie loans Tiana a dress. And because of who 
Tiana is. Tiana walks out into the light, out of the shadows, in this beautiful dress. And this would usually be the dream-come-true glamour shot, where the heroine is dressed up in this beautiful garb she always wanted. But she doesn't care. She's heartbroken and yeah. sad because she was just outbid on the property she's been saving for her whole life. Like I, That's the sort of thing that makes me love this character. In the documentary Dream on Silly Dreamer, a female animator uh, mentions that a friend of hers was talking about uh, Cinderella, the scene where the ugly sisters tear her uh, dress to pieces and it just it's it's tatters and rags and it just sort of falls around her and she slumps down because they've ripped apart her dream and just that animation just really spoke to this lady when she was a child and just like that stuck with her it's that moment for me when Tiana comes out heartbroken in that dress you found the my favorite shot of the whole film it's so loaded and she is wonderful at that moment yeah also, um, did you notice the colour transitions in that scene? Ooh, there is a no, I didn't. very definite pink-blue blend. Charlotte's room is very, very pink. Tiana comes out in a blue dress. Then the camera turns around. The moonlit exterior on the mm. balcony is blue. She walks from the pink room to the blue balcony and then it turns back again and now she is on the blue balcony looking back at the pink room and it's really reminiscent of the scene where aurora is changing from blue to make pink, it pink to make it blue, blue to pink so it, blue in this scenario is actually more associated well pink is luxury and blue is uncertainty yeah or sadness or indeed sadness well no the uncertainty of the, the, this wide open sky um, because the sky isn't necessarily sadness, although in this case, when she's you know it's wishing up to the sky when she's a child, that she's not sad there. It's just it's this yearning she has, and yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. Her dress is blue. No, no, no. Her her waitress dress yeah. for um, where does she work at night? We'll call it the Creole Hole. I can't think of the name, but yeah, the, the dress she comes home in is blue. Mm-hmm. The dress she changes into to go to work at Duke's is yellow. If you blend those two, you get uh, <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> Very, like, conspiracy nut territory. So, oh, actually, oh my God, no, that's perfect. Who Tiana really is is green. Is green. Mm-hmm. But by doing the two jobs so consistently, she's been forced to divide... The important elements of her character. In her dream, she's clad in yellow. The whole place is yellow. And she needs to sort of combine it with that blue to get that green. Mm. Ah, high five. Meet my hand in the air. (laughs) Okay, so... I love this stuff. Question, why is it impossible to hate Charlotte? Oh, dear, honey. Did you see the way he danced with me? A marriage proposal can't be far behind. Thank you, Evening Star. <laughs> you know, I was starting to think that wishing on stars was just for babies and crazy people. Look at you. Ooh, aren't you just as pretty as a magnolia in May? Seems like only yesterday we were both little girls dreaming our fairy tale dreams. And tonight they're finally coming true. Well, back into the fray. <clears throat> Wish me luck. I don't know, but it is impossible paper, to hate Charlotte. If you just read what she's saying, you're like, oh, you little oik. Like when she's a child and then when she's an adult. 
how like how is she not I mean how do they do it it's it's a magic trick part of it I think is the way she's drawn she is so cuddly she's everything about her is is squishy curves and she's so adorable they didn't make her too conventionally Disney princess beautiful she's like um, not so much an imposter princess but she's like the little girl who wants to be a princess she's mm. their audience she's got a very Marilyn Monroe figure as well mm, mm. and oh. she's very wiggly yes yeah um, but I All think that business well, with the fork yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's not a mean bone in her body oh, she yeah, doesn't no. she does things out of obliviousness she does like that that bit where she takes all the money out of um, out of her dad's wallet and goes and basically throws it at Tiana and goes, "Is this enough?" She hasn't even counted it. She doesn't know how much is there. She has no idea how much a beignet costs. Here's the monies. Go buy yourself a restaurant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and but but there's no that scene where um, the dog jumps up on the table and everything goes Stella. everywhere. Yeah. By the way, that's one more hangover from the book. There was a dog hounding them the whole time, which turns out to be the prince's horse. Uh. Okay. Um, but it, it occurred to me when we watched that this time that it would have been very easy for, if you did want to portray Charlotte as mean, mm. the fact that she'd set up the whole thing with the with the beignets to try and seduce the prince with food, yep. when it all fell apart and she ended up getting dragged away from him because um, uh, Tiana needed help, mm. she could have got mean. Yeah, she could have said, you ruined this for me, Tiana. Yeah, absolutely. And or even was, at the very least been mean to the dog and yeah, gone, stupid and Mert. If, if she really was selfish as opposed to simply oblivious, mm. then I think that that would have been a, a likely turn for her character. But she's not. Her instant response is to try and help Tiana and go and get her cleaned up and, and mm. make her feel better about the fact that she's fallen over and, you know, got covered in donut dust. And when Tiana comes out and she goes, oh, you look as... Pretty as a marigold in May. And she means it there. She's not being patronising, going, oh, Tiana, don't you look lovely? In a, like She's kind of taken aback that Tiana is, in fact, stunning. Yeah. Now, so many movies would turn Charlotte and her dad into horrible, hateful people because it's, like, it's the easy thing to do to make you root for Tiana as she puts up with the spoiled rich people. But yeah, yeah. I, I love that the movie doesn't make them into just villains for you to hate, like, Charlotte may be spoiled and self-absorbed, but she is a genuine sweetheart, and you can't really hate her. She she will drop everything and help Tiana as soon as she notices Tiana's hurting. Yeah, she just has to get away, get her out of her own way. Yeah, and they yeah. also give a really good reason why Tiana and her are friends. Her mother um, Eudora made Charlotte a bunch of different dresses. This basically is a really great sort of rewriting of well, Tiana's her maid, isn't she? It's it's a great kind of like well they know each other because of this yeah. early pri- you know prearrangement as children and uh, while um, young sh- apparently the uh, the kids playing the younger versions of them were exactly like the younger versions of them um, when they're they're kid friends there's no like rank pulling from Charlotte she's you know she just basically tr- treats Tiana like a fun playmate but not in a spiteful way. Mm. Albeit she's yeah. extremely boisterous and, and throws the cat at her with that frog mask on. <laughs> but it's a great um, way to establish their characters and how they're it different is. as well. And ultimately, what you say about um, Charlotte's response, as soon as she knows you're hurting, she wants to help. Ultimately, mm. look at what she does at the end. When she finds out what it is they're trying to achieve, oh, yeah. she's, her, her response is basically, well, no, you, you don't have to marry me. I will still do this. And it's, it's not stated outright. But I do think there is possibility Possibly a little bit of an implication that she will still help Tiana with the restaurant as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
I will reiterate here, I don't know if this was conscious or not in terms of the animators and the writers, in terms of Musco and Clements as directors, but you can read into this film that Charlotte and her father are Disney. Long established, super successful, naive, romantic to the point where it becomes annoying, good at heart, frequently blind to the suffering of others, willing to help when it's made abundantly clear they can. Growing up in the South, I have known people sort of like Charlotte. Like, she's a caricature and she's exaggerated, but she still feels very familiar and true to me, which is, I think, also why her character resonates and she's so likable. Besides the fact that she's also just really, really funny and animated extraordinarily well. Do you you remember The Help? Jessica Chastain's character, just this really well-meaning housewife who just uh, doesn't have any friends. I didn't actually watch that one, oh, so... Oh, see it, it's wonderful. But I'll, but, but I'll pretend, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, she's just, like, again, she's got that kind of very broad southern uh, bell thing going on, but um, you know, she's just sort of alone in this manor house and just wants somebody to talk to. Uh, and uh, Charlotte does sort of strike me as a little bit lonely. Like, she's super excitable, but who's her best friend apart from Tiana? Can you name another one? You know, mm. she's... Or do you really see her with any other friends? Ultimately, she might not choose to go and hang out with them, but Tiana still has those friends who ask her to go dancing with Bingo. them. Charlotte doesn't have anybody who does that for the her. The possible side effects of being quite such a daddy's girl yeah. and being so Most dependent on Most of the people at that. the masquerade ball are not her age. Mm. True. They'll be her dad's friends, not hers. Yeah. Really well handled with Eudora as well, Oprah Winfrey. When she turns up and she's got the gumbo pot, it's just a really nice way of showing that the father is no longer here, uh, but the spirit of what he wanted with the restaurant and the sharing food with everyone, just this symbol, just this crucible of idea, mm. uh, just happens to be this gumbo pot. I, I think they tell that story really well with the photograph, actually. There's there's no yeah. sit-down um, explanatory discussion about the fact that her father is now absent from the from the scene, but ultimately the, the way she is reverent with the photograph the medal that's hanging on it the fact that he's yeah. you know he's in that picture in uniform you know that's for a very specific know. form of heroism by it, the way so yeah. if he went out then and that was posthumous then it was for a very good cause yeah but, yeah having the medal on it really does complete the story right there you're like oh i get it okay absolutely that and then that is not a conversation that needs to be had everything that you need is is right there but the fact that they don't have it then when the shadow man starts getting personal with her at the end that just tore me to pieces they do the the shorthand storytelling really well in this, actually, in, on, on several occasions. Um, we, we recently watched something, and I can't think what it was, where it was just like exposition. Constant, relentless, guilt-free exposition. As, as well as the, the thing with the picture of uh, Tiana's father, the moment where they're... Uh, they've just caught hold of the balloons after the whole hopping across the table thing, and mm-hmm. she she shouts something, and uh, and the dog Estella says Tiana, and she's like, oh my god, Estella spoke, and it just that simple moment tells you, okay, now they're frogs, they can understand animals. Yeah, you don't have to have a sit down moment where it's explained to the audience. Now they're frogs; they can understand animals. <laughs> animals in this world do talk amongst themselves. As humans, you can't understand them. As frogs, you now will. So then, that whole thing about them being able to talk to Ray, being able to talk to Lewis, all that kind of thing. There, there is no uh, required exposition as to why that is okay. Yeah. 
No, any other movie would have this sit down. Wait, you understood me? Wow, this is amazing. Like, just they'd have a whole five-minute scene. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's I... so brief. Stay back or I'll... Please, please, please. Uh, oh, well, allow me to introduce myself. I am Prince Nervine. I'm Maldonia. Prince, but I didn't wish for any... Hold on. If, if you're the prince... Then, then who was that Walton with Lottie on the dance floor? All I know is one minute I am a prince, charming and handsome, cutting a rug, and then the next thing I know, I'm tripping over these. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so Prince Naveen, again, they tried to make him a different kind of prince. How? Why is, uh, why is Naveen different to say Prince Eric? He speaks. Okay, there's that one thing. (laughs) (laughs) He appears human, which is a start. He has a whole lot of personality to him. He is his own... He is not just functionally a... uh, Deus Ex Machina device to bring the princess... Or the future princess heroine to her princess status. He is a flag. Ooh. Yeah. Or a He's also... He is very flawed but lovable at the same time. Like he's got the same Charlotte sort of self-absorption thing going on. Yeah, and uh, just clearly a super irresponsible but lovable person. I also like the fact that he has a skill set, and it doesn't just consist of being able to ride a horse and swing a sword at the same time. Um, and it's a different skill set to Tiana's because again it also uh, seems to be a slightly different skill set to being a prince well, it's almost yeah. like he, he can never really u- took to this the prince game <laughs> he can play the ukulele and manipulate people hmm <laughs> interesting <laughs> where'd you learn that um but um yeah the the fact that the i i see these two actually as um very closely connected in a way that disney princesses and disney princes have not traditionally been um, and there is this real element of the idea of balance to the story that what he can do well, she's no good at, and what she excels at, he hasn't got a clue on, and that's the whole point, that they they fit together in a way that they fill out each other's differences. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Have we had a Disney movie up to this point where the prince and princess characters each had something they needed to learn from each other? Ah, uh, what does Belle learn of Beauty and the Beast? Yeah, because that one seems like Beast is the one who has all the learning to do, and Belle sort of, it is, as a character, helps to bring him to that point. She, but I don't know if she has to go through a lot of change. She learns to be less scared of him in the immediate. That's that's not really a, a thing. That's, a, that's not a skill. Be less me, scared of beasts. Cause it's, it's, be less it? scared of beasts. <laughs> I learned to be myself and be less scared of beasts. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's not as if Belle needs to learn to be less superficial, because if she was superficial in the beginning, she'd be taken in by Gaston, and she's not. Yeah. Ariel doesn't learn anything much of anything. Don't trust witches. Sea witches, anyway. Uh, certainly not ones that soliloquise and laugh about you right in front of you. <laughs> yeah, that's a giveaway. Absolutely. Jasmine... Jasmine doesn't really... I mean, I I suppose you could say that part of Jasmine's arc is that she becomes fractionally less spoiled. She learns a little bit about what goes on outside the palace. Yeah, but it's not really a major thing and you could quite easily have got by in the story without it. Mm. Uh, Mulan doesn't learn anything because she was right all along. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yep. 
Yeah. If, if anything else, like the, the men in China will go, oh, okay then. <laughs> so maybe a girl can do something sort of. Okay, have a sword. Bye. Uh, and her prince doesn't really learn much either. No. He doesn't change significantly. Jane doesn't really change in terms of character. She gets learn- She learns to live rough a bit more. <laughs> she takes her boots off. Yeah. I suppose, uh, to be fair, in this one, Tiana doesn't have to change a lot. Naveen's the one who really is is learning most of the lessons here. I don't know. I think letting someone I would say else... the complete opposite. Yeah, I think letting, someone, oh, okay. letting someone else help you is a huge step for someone who has spent their whole life going, nope, I can do it, I'm fine. I don't need any help. Yes. That is Yes, huge. it is. People go their whole <laughs> lives. That, I mean, that's bigger than... 38 rel- and counting. <laughs> Ariel's like, I wish I had legs. That's nothing of the change that basically allowing someone to help you is. That's, I mean, Tiana not only does that, but she learns to dance and have fun in a way with other people that's not just... I'm dancing because I'm going to finally get this restaurant, which is the only other time she actually allows herself to have fun. Yeah, self-sufficiency is a really seductive armour because ultimately you you can get by in that armour your entire life and any time you try to take any of it off, it's very easy for something to go wrong to suggest that actually you should probably put it back mm. on again. And honestly, Naveen learning to stop being quite such, well, to, learning to to not be a playboy anymore and that there is actually just one person who was right for him, really, that's a significant thing as well because he grows the hell up very quickly. It, it means the difference between living entirely for yourself and living for someone else. But Mama OD actually says it explicitly. She says to Naveen, he won't have to dig far. He mm. says to, she says to Tiana, you've Use got a hard work to do. Because ultimately, Naveen needs to learn things, but he doesn't really need to unlearn anything. Yeah. Tiana has That's a shed true. load that she needs to unlearn, and that is the hard bit. Quite a lot of Yoda in Mama O.D. Crazy mm. person mm. living in a swamp, way older than she looks. Yeah. And yet remarkably spry. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But yeah, because Tiana's got mis- got what you could argue are mistaken ideals, but also they are mistaken ideals that are reinforced by the society around her. Yeah. The evidence would suggest that you she just has to work even harder than she has been already. She even says as much at the end of the song, and everybody face palms because she still hasn't got it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Eudora is an important part of Tiana as well. In the uh, deleted scene, Eudora is like, oh, I would like to make one more dress. What dress? Your wedding dress. Thank you, Mum. I haven't even met anyone yet. And some baby grows. I'm 19 years old. Time to settle down and start a family. Can I focus on the restaurant? Generic mom things. The fact that they held back on that and actually made um, Eudora like a little bit kind of urging her. Like she's worried about her, you can see. But she's also very happy that she's getting to this level of achievement. And she's proud of her as well. She's just, she's a fantastic mum. And uh, again, having Oprah play her kind of works for that yeah i think in essence the the, what eudora wants for her daughter is for her to be happy and i think what she is worried about is that one day she will work herself so hard that she gets the restaurant and it will not make her happy because she's forgotten how to be but she's gently plying at her rather than nagging her in that regard as well 
Yes, I think it's important that they cut that scene. Yeah, because otherwise it would have become a little bit naggy. Indeed. Um, but yeah, I think it is. It is pretty gentle. I, in all honesty, the there's maybe one scene missing from this film, and that was to really establish. Like the first time I saw it, I was a little bit confused regarding the whole transformation scene, the introduction to Naveen, this weird duplicate who turns out to be Lawrence. It really there needs to be a scene where um, Prince Naveen is partying with a uh, uh, ukulele and his parents grumble at him. Because then we get the dynamic between Naveen and his parents and we, we get that there is something lacking in his life. There is something expected of him, which is sort of put across in, in Lawrence. But because Lawrence is this sort of like the, the guy in, um, played by Timothy Spall in Enchanted, yeah, he's kind of Zazu. He's the guy who's tagging along, yeah. representing your parents, and what is probably what you should do, but yeah. he also is sort of ridiculous and ignorable. A much stuffier version of what you should be being told by Mufasa. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Although, I, the one thing that did occur to me this time was if Naveen's already been cut off by his parents and therefore has no income stream at this point, who's paying Lawrence? Why is Lawrence still hanging around? I'm pretty sure it's not out of sympathy. I still have a bank Oh, no, maybe Lawrence is still being paid. A little that bit. could be. Oh. Maybe it's like <laughs> we'll pay you. Make to go sure watch our him. son doesn't die, but we're not paying him. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's exactly what yeah, happens. I think so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But so basically, Naveen thinks he's being self-sufficient and looking after himself, but no. Well, that's it. Basically, the scene where they cut him off—that mm. should be the scene. And like you know, when and and Lawrence is like, "Oh, sir." I don't know what we're going to do. And Naveen's like, oh, we'll go out and have a party. And it's like, oh, he's not learning his lesson oh at all. Oh, my God, no. It's just occurred to me. <laughs> Naveen comes back to the apartment to find that Lawrence has kitted it out with a hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for my son. In fact, yeah, uh, Lawrence opens the door and goes, ah! and then shuts it again. <laughs> So if you have if you haven't seen Coming to America, all that this is flipping really funny. funny. <laughs> this is this is a slight tangent. I've broken but... Sharon. <laughs> Carry on, Deb. I want to keep recording this because it's always great when Sharon's falling apart. <laughs> okay, so historically, in terms of character design, okay, the, Carrie just pointed this out and it was really interesting. It's not like a big thing, but I, I think it's cool. Okay. So Disney main characters that like the prince and the princess mm-hmm. types have usually all fit typical beauty standards. Like, they are the most relatively realistically drawn. They fit the human proportions most. They're, They're not, all pretty. They may be light. Yeah, they, and they might be lightly exaggerated, but not so extremely so that they deviate from that beauty norm. They're not going to have but a big the, weird head. Yeah, yeah, but the side characters will. Like, uh, Aladdin and Jasmine will look fairly normal. Uh, Jafar will look sort of stretched out and uh, more sinister. Jasmine's dad will be a, a circle, basically. Hmm. But uh, so the, so the side characters are much more free to be more caricatured Jafar and exaggerated. Jafar has face huggers for hands. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but here Exclusive. because in just in because in this specific film the central characters are people of color. Every every white character in this film is some degree of side character and thus more exaggerated in design. Mm-hmm. So it's just Disney typical formula, kind of creating a different. Just a different result just because of their choice of of a hero and heroine, which is just I, I don't know if it really signifies anything important, but I just think it's neat to see because yeah. it's not something we've seen thus far. The, the fine line you mentioned earlier, they get really close to that line. They're tiptoeing, just uh, just teetering over the edge of it when they're showing the uh, occupants of New Orleans. When They've got like a, a child of color dancing in the streets while Naveen's playing his mandolin. And it's like, 
we have to make sure that how do I even put this it like basically that we do not give them overtly racially caricature features yeah it's very hard they to, were to caricature. so close yeah it is like drawing that fine line between caricature without getting into offensive stereotype caricature because i mean that's what caricature is often used mm. to do and they're, they're hamstrung by line. the time period and the fact that they're wearing that particular clothes this is yeah. where like most of the racial caricature stuff came like from civil war era where art was being deliberately cruel but by the 1930s well into the jim crow era it gets even more patronizing denigrating and cruelly mocking uh, just to definitely keep you people in your place. Constant degradation. And to even vaguely evoke that in their art. We, uh, it's it's really tough. It's really yeah. tough. And I think they succeeded this time, which is like, that was that was a hard challenge they had to deal with. And I think they actually pulled it off, which is like, kudos yeah. to their art design, like character design and art design, because that was that... That would have been so easy to accidentally fall into. Yeah. Making sure that when the black characters spoke, they all sounded like people. And if anyone actually came off as like a truly horrendous stereotype, it's the swamp drellers. Yeah. It's those <laughs> frog eaters. It's like, you know, I, I can imagine uh, rednecks getting up in the audience and going, well, I've seen enough. Thank you very much. My cousin has <laughs> only got two fingers. Oh. Aren't you tired of living on the margins? While all those fat cats in their fancy cars don't give you so much as a sideways glance. Yes, I am. All you got to do is marry Big Daddy's little princess, and we'll be splitting that juicy LeBuff fortune right down the middle. 60-40, like I said. Mm, yes, but uh, what about Naveen? Your little slipper <gasps> will be a minor bump in the road, so long as we've got the prince's blood in this. <laughs> Dr. Facilia, the uh, villain, the Scar. I was amazed to find out Andreas Dejar did not work on this guy. It was, uh, as I said, Bruce W. Smith. Andreas Dejar was there, and he did... Uh, he, he did uh, Mama Odie. Mama Odie, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, because... Bruce Dejar... Smith is an amazing... Yeah, Bruce Smith's an amazing animator, too. But, he, like, not he wasn't around as long as uh, Andreas Dejar was, but he is... Awesome. And he hadn't gotten himself a reputation for doing villains so much. Uh, yeah. Obviously, Gaston, Ursula, uh, Jafar. But, um, yeah, Facilia is one of my favorite Disney villains. Yes, me too. It could just be the fact that um, he moves like he does, which is amazing. Um, yes. It could also be the fact that he's voiced by Keith David, which I want to bet on. I was like, I bet that's Keith David. I was right. <laughs> and um, so basically, every, every, now and, every time Keith David turns up in a film, I go, I, I bet that's Keith David. Just to sort of remind you. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the actual, like, he's... He's a villain who's like, you know, deliciously evil. But at the same time, he kind of feels like he's like, he's one of those villains where it's like, listen, if someone's going to believe me on this, it's their own stupid fault type of villain. Yeah. You know? That's yeah. true. And he's not committing atrocities, really. I mean, he's he's planning to, like, it's all like so that he can advance himself. And, and, he's, and he's ultimately, he's using people's own weaknesses against yeah. them for his own personal gain. He was going to kill Big Daddy with a voodoo um, doll and, like, depose yeah. a country. But, <laughs> kind of. 
Um, he may <laughs> have the potential for a trustee. Basically, he has the potential, but at this point, he's just kind of scrappy. Yeah, he's small potatoes. It's almost the fact that he's so small fry that makes him so much fun. Like, he's down on his luck as well. But I think one of the, the great scenes with him is the when he goes to his friends on the other side to ask for their help. Mm. And, and I love that song so much because it simultaneously increases the stakes of the movie Mm -hmm. because, like, now you know there's these bigger, big bads that are are behind all of this and and have the potential to cause harm. But it also diminishes the threat of him slightly because, basically, you've got to see the man that Jeffrey is scared of. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I do love that he is a manipulator who has something to be afraid of. Mm. Like He's not just, I'm being evil because I'm greedy or jealous or angry or I'm going to blow up the world or something. He has made deals with forces beyond imagining, and he has deepened the red with those entities right yes, now. And his yes. soul is at stake, so he's actually – he like he will do evil things because he has to or he is in huge trouble. Yeah. yeah. I could frankly watch a Facilia movie. Yeah. Like, yes, um, we'll too. see it in 20 years' time. It'll just be called there's, Facilia. There's, <laughs> one, one thing that struck me, actually, was that there's, there's two uh, links that his name has specifically that set him up as the antagonist of the story, um, specifically the antagonist to Tiana. And that's, you've got, uh, first off, uh, the idea of facilitating, which is getting people things they think they want, which is the exact opposite of what Mama OD does. Yeah. She gets people to realise what they need and let go of what they want. Yeah. And also the uh, the French word facile, meaning easy. Mm. He's offering people the easy route. And that's something that Tiana specifically refers to in, in Almost There. Can slow you down. Yeah, people, people take the, the easy, easy way. way. And he's the one who basically takes people down that easy path, that, you know, <laughs> quicker, easier, more, more seductive. seductive. Um, and There's a lot of Star Wars in this film. <laughs> there is indeed. Um, and Tiana is very specifically doing the exact opposite of what Naveen gets drawn into with... Uh, Dr. Facilier. She is going the hard route and she is doing it with no help. Taking pride in that. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that in and of itself kind of emphasises <clears throat> that he is the uh, the villain of the piece without him really having to come into direct contact with Tiana, which he doesn't until quite late in the movie. Tiana is the American dream constantly coming into contact with the American reality. Ooh, yeah. I thought you were going to say facilitates the American nightmare. <laughs> no, he's just facilitating the American nightmare. Nice, <laughs> but yeah, no, the, uh, the 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 dance that that's one of my favourite songs. It's one of my favourite villain songs. Yes, um, it's it's got like like I said before, it's Cab Calloway. If you go back and watch the way he danced, that that sort of you know crazy sort of erratic, elaborate, loopy movements, uh, and just that presence he had on stage, and that they're definitely getting that aspect in there and it's it also kind of reminds me a little bit of the old Betty Boop era cartoons as well that kind of you know not too distant from the actual 1920s anyway yeah you know he just oozes charm like I that that's one of my favorite villain songs as well I think it might be the most like Disney 2D animation I think that might be the most spectacle in a in a song Really, that I can think of, especially it's, it's, get, when you, once you get toward the end, that is just amazing looking. You'd have to, well, um, like, it's not as well known as Be Our Guest. Most people might say Be Our Guest or possibly Circle of Life because there's so much going on in Circle of Life. Oh, yeah. 
But um, yeah, no, it's 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 a it's a carnival, and they could have. That's the thing; they never really marketed that side of things. But they could basically have said, look, "Look, it's Disney. Remember when Disney was a party? You know, yeah. That that was how they marketed Aladdin. So it certainly didn't hurt them there. Don't you disrespect me, little man? Don't you derogate or deride? You're in my world now, not your world. And I got friends on the other side. He's got friends on the other side. That's an echo, gentlemen. Just a little something we have here in Louisiana. A little parlor trick, don't worry. Sit down at my table. Put your minds at ease. If you relax, it will enable me to do anything I please. I can read your future. I can change it around some too. I look deep into your heart and soul. You do have a soul, don't you, Lawrence? Make your wildest dreams come true. I got voodoo, I got voodoo, I got things I ain't even tried. And I got friends on the other side. He's got friends on the other side. The cards, the cards, the cards will tell. The past, the present, and the future as well. The cards, the cards, just take three. Take a little trip into your future with me. Now you, young man, are from across the sea. You come from two long lines of royalty. I'm a royal myself on my mother's side. Your lifestyle's high, but your funds are low. You need to marry a little honey who's dead and got dough. Mom and dad cut you off, huh, playboy? Now you're gonna get hitched, but hitching ties you down. You just want to be free, hop from place to place. But freedom takes green. <laughs> it's the green, it's the green, it's the green you need. And when I looked into your future, it's the green that I seen. On you, little man, I don't want to waste much time. You've been pushed around all your life. You've been pushed round by your mother and your sister and your brother. And if you was married, you'd be pushed round by your wife. But in your future, the you I see is exactly the man you always wanted to be. Shake my hand. Come on, boys. Won't you shake a poor sinner's hand? Yes. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Transformation Central. Transformation Central. Reformation Central. Transformation Central. Central. Can you feel it? You're changing, you're changing, you're changing. All right. I hope you're satisfied. But if you ain't. Don't blame me. You can blame my friends on the other side. You got what you want. 
it's possible that had they got like a had they strewn this with celebrity voices rather than getting really fantastic voice actors and singers mm. in uh, to do this, then it might have been uh, you know more of a sort of like the, the trendy like we got Justin Timberlake, come and see this. Even would have got them a few more hundred million. Even if just one or two that they could have stuck on the the trailer to try and drag people in, that might have been worthwhile. You know, you got Oprah. I believe Oprah can sing. And Anika Noni Rose, uh, who was in Dreamgirls. Um, interestingly enough, with Sing, uh, Jennifer Hudson, who's also in Dreamgirls, had also tried out for this role. She was really close to getting it. Um, it you know, sings some amazing stuff. And, uh, you know, her voice. I mean, th- let's talk about the music, because all of these yes. songs are great. It's, they are again, so good. Again, it's going back to the absolute best of the the nineties uh, Renaissance when all the songs were great. There was there wasn't a bum note. It feels like other Disney films have music, and this one like loves music. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just just the because music is so core to the identity of New Orleans in general, and that and because the movie is embracing that, you really feel that love. And I, it makes me very happy actually that they had Randy Newman on mm. making these songs because like his, the score he makes for the film is okay. Like it, it sounds pretty much almost exactly like his other scores and like certain little bits and moments almost sound exactly like moments he put into toy story it's and other Pixar films. Toy story and bugs life. Yeah. But when it comes to the songs though, I think he was the perfect choice. Cause th- like, this that sort of realm of music is his bread and butter. Yeah. And I'm sure Alan Menken could have given us a more memorable score probably with his eyes closed, but for songs, I think Randy Newman might have actually even been a better choice. Mm-hmm. Did he so did he do all the uh, songwriting as well? Uh I uh, who did all the songwriting? I don't know if he did the songwriting as well. He might have. I'm going to check this now because I'm curious. Because I mean, originally uh, I know that he wanted to sing "Catch Him Down in New Orleans," but yeah. they um, they clearly would have listened to his demo version and gone, "This is Pixar. This is Toy Story." In the Southland, there's a city, yeah. and it, they were like, "We've got to get a guy who really sounds authentic to the place." So you know, they got the dude who sung the Blossom song, <laughs> and other stuff that uh, Doctor John has uh, has has done. It's uh, it, it's it's just right to sort of bring you in again. It's naive. It's glossed over of the actual. You know, we're not going to go down Bourbon Street and have a look at what's on the balconies there. It's the Disney World or Disneyland version of New Orleans. It's their smaller New Orleans that's in their parks, you know? Yeah. It's clean. It doesn't have a hustler, barely legal club on the corner. Dr. Facilio is the, the dodgy one that you've got to watch out for, but they clearly mark him for you so you don't fall into that particular trap. Um, looking at the uh, score, did you find this already, uh, Dan? Uh, I, I mean, I think he must. Have, I'm not seeing anybody else credited as lyricist, so he must yeah. have written the songs as well. Like I know he composed them. He must have written the lyrics as well. All the tracks were written by Randy Newman, except. Which? Oh yeah. It feels like that might have been a song in it, sung by Naveen. Like the, the way that they know now you need to have that song get re- uh, radio play and it needs to be a version of a showstopper in the movie that gets sung by 
a, a popular artist. So basically the uh, the radio version of uh, Let It Go, which I think was probably eclipsed by the actual version of Let It Go uh, yeah. in terms of radio play. But like, you know, um, the uh, How Far I'll Go, that's got a, uh, a cover version which um, has clearly gotten like Disney Channel and radio play. Yeah. I know, I know um, radio stations, certainly in the UK at the time that Frozen came out, were by and large playing the... Um, Edina Menzel version yeah. rather than the one that they put at the end. But like you, can, you can play almost there to a, a regular audience. It's not going to get them like "Let It Go" in terms of an "I Want" song. Uh, so like you know, it doesn't matter who sings that. Um, it's just sort of a, a bouncy kind of kind of one there. Uh, it's it's just kind of going to be kind of a bouncy. Um, jazzy song mm. even if you Although, pop it up i think somebody pointed out the other day on twitter that um let it go is actually not the i want song it's the villain song oh yeah no totally the uh, the i want song is um why have a ballroom with no balls let's talk about that when we do frozen but yes. um, yeah <laughs> um but no the the equivalent from um princess and the frog would be friends, friends on, on the other side, side. Which, by the way, totally mirrors the uh, Ursula. Well, what's yep. the Ursula song? Um, Poor unfortunate what, souls. Yes, thank you. Yeah, just yes. in that sort of three act little structure of, hey, this is who I am. Do you want to make a deal? Okay, we made a deal. Here we go. I win. We got us some suckers here right now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Absolutely. That's I'm going to call exactly you suckers right to your I was face. just going to say, Dan. You took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I. I just, as an animator, enjoyed now and then find, taking just a Disney song sequence and just kind of framing through just to watch the animation. And uh, um, Friends on the Other Side is an amazing song sequence to just frame through. Oh, yeah. Because there's so many subtle little, just as an animator, tiny, subtle little things. Like the fact that uh, right after the intro when uh, Facilier is walking Naveen and Lawrence through the door and he's saying, hey, that's just an echo, don't worry about it. And he slams the door and at the same time, it happens so quick, you almost don't see it in motion, but he slams the door and does a quick spin, which looks so awesome when you frame nice. through it. But and, and it looks great in motion, too, but you just feel it more than see it. And it's, oh, man, I just love that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I especially like the fact that his shadow is creepy, and it seems like, you know, oh, this is actually showing his true motives. But over the course of the film, it's like... No, his shadow has become a conceptual entity. It knows things, and it's not him. I was going to say, it's watching him. Yeah. It's going to start stabbing him if he does things he shouldn't. It's, that's kind of terrifying. That's a weird symbiotic relationship yeah, now. He's a got kid. a demon living in him. Mm. Yeah, Ooh, Mother Knows Best. That's another really awesome Oh, God, song. yes. Oh, yes, it is. It's yeah. so good. You know, Facilier's death is actually really frightening, too, oh, even yeah. though it's not, like, a death that is shown or seen or like i'm sure we've had more graphic ones but it is actually terrifying as a as a disney villain death i think the most oh my god is probably clayton in charles and the hanging yeah (laughs) yeah probably so but uh yeah no this is um one of those ones was like that's uh, like all those previous disney films that had the uh villain dying from falling off a cliff underachievers this guy gets dragged to hell screaming by demons and tiny little like gleeful voodoo dolls with eye gouging needles in their little hands and uh then afterwards just like after he gets willie lopez away you're dead willie the little cherry on top is the gravestone with his face on it which made lyra go oh god (laughs) (laughs) 
He's pretty grim. Because he actually looks briefly as though he's been trapped in the gravestone. I think that that actually might be the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, the, the whole, um, you know, that, that fits in with our sense of justice and like you do bad things and bad things happen to you. That's what we want to believe. Does Hades and Hercules get off scot-free, by the way? No, he gets punched into a river of souls. Okay. And uh, they're all like clawing at him and then pain and panic go, uh, you know, he's not going to be happy when he gets out of there. If he gets out of there. Oh, yeah. If. If, if it's, it's good. good. So, I mean, feasibly, Hades could be drowning and screaming in souls forever. That's a pretty... That's quite dark. (laughs) Until Zeus comes down and goes, the balance of everything is ruined. (laughs) Nobody's died up there for thousands of years. It's all gone horribly wrong. Hmm. So let's talk about Lewis. If I were a human being, I'd head straight for New Orleans. And I'd blow this horn so hard and strong like no one they've ever seen. You heard of Louis Armstrong, Mr. Sidney Bechet. All those boys gotta step aside when they hear this old ex-gator play. Listen. When I'm human, as I hope to be, I'm gonna blow this horn till the cows come home and Too bad. A redhead on my left arm, a brunette on my right, a blonde or two to hold the candles, and that seems just about right. Hey, Lewis, life is short. When you're done, you're done. We're on this earth to have some fun, and that's the way things are. Tell it, right. When I'm human, and I'm gonna be, I'm gonna tear it up like I did before. And that's a royal guarantee. I've worked hard for everything I've got And that's the way it's supposed to be When I'm a human being At least I'll act like one If you do your best each and every day Good things are sure to come your way What you give is what you get My dad said that and I'll never forget And I commend it to you When we're human And we're gonna be I'm gonna blow my horn I'm gonna live the high life Did this guy start out uh, like differently? Because it feels like they were they were going like we need an animal companion, and then they doubled down. And I know that the uh, one of the core aspects of this, which is the lovely romantic idea of a firefly that falls in love with the evening star, and that, that was just such a wonderful idea that they couldn't not include Ray. And feasibly, they could have got through the whole film with Ray just being their companion. You could lift Lewis out. He doesn't necessarily teach them anything. In fact, if anything, he hinders them. No, no, no. I, I do think Lewis has quite an important point to the, I, I, to the I'm story. not saying he's useless. I love Lewis. Mm. But, okay, so what does he contribute to the story? Um, basically, what Lewis represents, um, if you bear in mind that, that 
like I said, the the moral of the vast majority of Disney stories is about being yourself and being true to who you really are. Okay. Lewis wants to become human so that he can play jazz. Mm-hmm. Lewis eventually manages to find a way to play jazz without yeah, having to change. Yeah. He doesn't have to change himself because he happens to find a situation where humans are dressing as animals. Now, I don't think that's going to last. <laughs> he can't really bounce know, he from gets costume to play party it, to costume party. He gets to play at uh, Tiana's palace at the end, doesn't he? Okay, so, so what, does his little band just maintain this theme of wearing the animal costume? I suppose it might just be like a come see the the, the jazz playing gator. Yeah, well, quite possibly. But like he's yeah, playing think, with, with like a, a quintet. Yeah. Okay, um, but I I do think that the the important point with Lewis is the idea that um, you you don't have to be something that you're not to get what you want. Yeah, I can see that. Because, I mean, uh, Naveen and Tiana do have to change, but they only have to change a little bit. Ultimately, they're trying to get back to their real shapes. Oh, yeah. Fire, He's playing with the Firefly fire, 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 five, five plus Lou. Plus Lou. Um, so clearly they, they come to accept the idea that an alligator could play a trumpet and not try and eat people. Like I said, it's a good draw to the uh, restaurant. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Um, where I, th- I think if they had gone a lot, if they'd gone with that idea that Lewis gets turned into a human, then it would be like, yay, he got what he wanted, but it's not, he's still not able to be himself. Yeah. I feel like I remember hearing, or maybe I imagined this, I feel like I remember hearing that in an earlier draft, he was a human who was turned, turned into, into an alligator. Yeah. 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 But, but but I like the actually the incarnation of his character as the film ha- has him. Oh, yeah. For the reasons that uh, Sharon just said. You know, when I was writing notes, make, like watching this movie, they were the most useless notes ever because it was just, I love this, I love this, I love this. <laughs> I love the Suye, I love Lewis, awesome. I love Ray, I love this song, I love that song. I love, like, these are not useful notes, but they're what I'm thinking while I watch. We exactly can't squeeze three hours out of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, that Ray uh, was very specifically modelled after Michael Jeter. Uh, if you've seen The Green Mile, he was the, uh, uh, he was Edmund Delacroix, the, um, Edward Delacroix, the guy who was uh, a fan of mice. And um, he's even got, like, straggly red hair, which uh, uh, Michael Jeter had in his, his prime. And Jeter died just a few years beforehand. And he's got that kind of, like, if you're going to do a Cajun-style voice, uh, uh, Jim Cummings just does this kind of wonderful, kind of very warm, neighborly kind of Cajun. It, like, he's almost unintelligible at times, but in a kind yeah. of like he doesn't necessarily require you to understand it because you get what he what the gist is, and uh, he's just this sort of source of joy and um, it's kind of there's a, a little bit of riffing like him, him being in love with Evangeline the uh, the the Evening Star is a little bit like um, Olaf wanting to experience summer. It's this kind of um, yeah, that's not going to happen for you. You know, like there's almost a point where Naveen like could say, "I'm going to tell him," but uh, <laughs> um, but they, but they don't. But it's it's the romantic side of that. Just just this sort of the, the aching he can never have this, but that's not going to stop his heart until his heart gets nearly broken near the end. But he he persists. That forms the the backbone of this unyielding faith. 
It, it does provide another opportunity to um, show the difference between Naveen's outlook and Tiana's as well, because ultimately um, Naveen's the one who stops Lewis. He's the dreamer. He's the one who, who wants that ideal to be allowed to continue. Tiana very specifically doesn't say anything at that point anyway, but it's her who snaps and, and tells him the truth later on. There is a brief moment when uh, I've, I've just seen the picture here where, where Lewis is talking about um, the Mama OD and he's talking about that she has voodoo uh, and he holds some fronds over his head in exactly the same way that Madame Mim does in Sword yeah. of the Stone. Yeah, yeah Carrie caught that too. And I'd like, I was wondering... That, that had to be an animator reference, surely. Yes, I would imagine so. There are actually a load of little like um, Easter eggs thrown in this, especially in Charlotte's room at the beginning, just to remind you of what Disney was before. All of Charlotte's dresses, uh, while they are pinked to craziness, have <laughs> like a little reference point in their design to a previous Disney princess dress. Awesome. Um, there's the... Uh, you've got the tea set, uh, resplendent of Mrs. Potts. You've got the uh, the little um, Cinderella carriages in there as well. Uh, her dress is Cinderella's dress only. It's pink. And then they do the dancing on the clouds dance, just to remind you of that. And... I, I, I don't know. I feel like kids are now raised on Shrek and Ice Age... If, if that didn't immediately become something that they would want to track down. We're getting maudlin again, but uh, yeah, the uh, the importance of Ray is is obviously um, you know, if you if you lifted Lewis out of the movie, you could feasibly just get by on Ray. You'd need to have maybe a bit more focus on Ray. But um, basically both, both Lewis and Ray are dreamers and that they, they want something which is nigh on impossible for both of them in a way that almost makes Tiana's dream seem feasible. Mm. I think as well, having Ray and specifically having the Firefly clan um, <clears throat> is a way of harking back to um, what Tiana's father wanted without being really blatant about it mm. because this is a big community that all comes together and yeah. all supports each other yeah. um, and then you kind of reinforce that again at the end um, the the transition when uh, Ray passes is is done very slowly and that's rare generally speaking in kids movies especially these days if, if you get that moment of of poignancy and sadness because somebody's died it it changes from that quite quickly they don't seem to want the kids to dwell on it too much Bambi they cut uh, uh, spring that's the lovely spring from a okay, series of unfortunate writing events writing this off as being modern kids is uh, modern kids movies is obviously from the word they've, go. they've been doing this for for decades obviously um, oh, let's sing a gay little spring song yeah. that's the one but with this you have it happens and then you actually have a, a relatively long moment where it dwells on on Lewis and Tiana and Naveen it's got a funeral which is rare um, for a and Disney then, exactly and, it, and then it doesn't even it doesn't even stop there you then it goes it, into the funeral and the funeral music and then you gradually transition from the sadness of the funeral to the joyousness of the wedding it's not but there is in between the, the 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 other star appearing in the sky yeah, is exemplary that ultimately while you can 
hope and hope and hope for something which seems unfeasible. Yeah, it's that well, doesn't it's, necessarily mean it is literally impossible. No, of course, and it's it those those three things linked together: the funeral, uh, the the extra star appearing in the sky, and then moving on to the wedding. Is that transition of you know people die and it's sad, um, but then there is renewal and then life goes on. Mm. And that is a process that does not get represented very much in kids' movies. They they do the the switch too quickly, and I think that's that's something that a lot of people really struggle with in terms of uh, modern expectations of emotional response. You can have your sadness, but you will be expected to turn it off like that when the the happy happy joy joy comes back on. If you remember the actual death of Ray, uh, it's a slow death. The actual injury that's I mean, if we're going to talk about what actually happens, Doctor Vasilia steps on him spitefully. Uh, you know, he's, he's a tiny little firefly who was going to present no real threat mm. and could just have been swatted aside. But he crunches him under his heel, and that changes the tone of the entire uh, finale. It, rather than becoming, oh, we've got to do this, otherwise bad things happen. It's like, no, something terrible has now happened. The stakes are now high. And so when he is tempting Tiana, there is a weight to that. So when she defeats him, it's like, yes. Something has been. It's not just she's defeated a scallywag. She's defeated a source of genuine malevolence there. Mm. Look how she lights up the sky, my belle Evangeline. So far above me, yet I. No, her heart belongs to only me. Je t'adore, je t'aime, Evangeline. You're my queen of the night, so still, so bright. There's someone as beautiful as she. Could love someone like me. Love always finds a way, it's true And I love you, Evangeline Ooh, yeah. Love is beautiful, love is wonderful, love is everything. Do you agree? <laughs> May we? Look how she lights up the sky. I love you, Evangeline. And I like that the film also, like, the emphasis on death not being a thing that is gotten over quickly also pertains to Tiana's father. Because even though he dies, we only see him briefly, he dies off screen, and they very quickly and efficiently deliver that information. On the the occasions where he is briefly brought back or, like, photos are shown or we see moments or anytime Tiana sees a moment or is reminded of him that like it's clear that the sadness of that 
doesn't go away. Just uh, just the sight of him in a vision is enough to bring a whole lot of emotion back. Yeah. And I like that that is something that is represented to where like it's not a thing that just like even in the course of a year is not it's not something that just goes away. It's not just that only vision as well. Mama OD shows her um, her father uh, feeding the community. Yeah, as a source of joy, and that's when Tiana's supposed to get the message there, mm-hmm. and she goes, oh, "I'm going to work even harder." And it's like, oh, at that moment. But uh, I, I do feel like if he had actually semi-managed to get that dream together himself and actually bought a restaurant and it had failed, would Tiana still be slaving away now mm-hmm. to try to achieve that dream? Uh, even if he had already failed or would she be just running it because she felt a duty to him or interestingly enough though it is a vision that makes her realize it's mm. just not that vision it's the one that the shadow man gives her later oh, on oh yeah no that's the one Dan was talking about originally. no 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 that's what i yeah. mean but it, the the fact that mamaro d was was using a reminder of her father to try and get her to see the truth yeah. but it's it's actually a different form that um, that makes her realize it's it's almost certainly the fact that Facilia is offering her the easy way out at that yeah. point. Mm-hmm. It's the, it, that shocks her into to really being able to focus and all the rest of it move, you know, moves away. And she's very alone at that stage as well. Yeah. See, that is, I think, one very important element of her, her work. Having had to work so hard, one of the things that she has internalised is if something's easy, be suspicious of it. Mm. And that's not a bad lesson to learn. Yeah. As with uh, Michael Jeter, the uh, woman that Mama O.D. was based on was one of their guides around um, uh, New Orleans. She was this sort of crazy old voodoo lady who was basically what we're seeing on screen here. And she had this incredibly youthful energy to her. She sounded wonderful. And Mama O.D., one of my favorite sages, and uh, there are a lot of sages up in my attic... (laughs) <laughs> and uh, definitely contributed towards a lot of the, the sages in New Century. But the, the idea of, of, of someone who comes along and is is very kind of um, jovial, but at the same time just, you know, sort of slaps you around, tells you when you're completely going off in the wrong direction. She's, you know, she's basically there to, to, to refocus and it doesn't actually work in, the, in for Tiana. Who she helps most of all there is Naveen. Yeah. That's an incredibly complex animation uh, with this, you know, chorus of flamingos behind her as well. So yeah, it's wonderful, wonderful. I loved watching the footage of the dancers they were using for reference, just because oh, yeah. that that style of dance is just amazing. Mm. That I was going to mention that actually, the woman that they used for the um, the, the reference for Mama Od, I'm just trying to see if I can find her name because she she's like 20 years old when that came she's out, but she was astounding. The way she moves is gorgeous yeah that's a style of dance that doesn't get seen widely enough i feel like because I, I love the way it looks it's mm-hmm. all the different styles of dance they represented in in this film are just awesome to behold back again to the idea of physical performance being you know very much highlighted by cinema because it's right there especially now in hd you can see every movement on tv when you got like we with our big screens and 1080p and the 4k's <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a wonderful way of of highlighting uh, human achievement in that in that regard absolutely Don't matter what you 
audio drama I have produced which has been the most inspired by Disney was most definitely The Princess Thieves. Here's a clip. There. Now if I pull this cap all the way down, I look plain and ugly and boring. <sighs> nope, you're still radiant. Even if we grime your face up, your posture just makes you stand out. Um, show me how you walk. Do you mean at court, or to my horse, or greeting a dignitary, or addressing a crowd? I have six different walks, Master Hood. All of them perfected over years of hard practice. Just show me how you walk down a street. Well, I suppose it's not as similar to walking to one's carriage. Here. She stepped with elegant strides, holding her head aloft. Okay, now you've been mugged. Won't you show me? Robin adopted a slower pace, slumped his shoulders and allowed his left-right movements to pull him into a natural lope that suggested resignation to defeat. <laughs> That's not how you walk, though. I've seen you. At this, she rushed in front of him and strode past, swaying her hips in a swagger, flashing him a grin as she sauntered past. You walk like you own the street. It's the artful dodger, and you want to be thinking Oliver. Oliver whom? Oh, by Thrail Copperhelm, you're reading the wrong books. I read all sorts of wonderful books. Have you read Nicholas Nickleby? No. Have you read what Katie did? This isn't a competition. Have you read A Tale of Two Cities? I've read Frankenstein. That doesn't help us. We can't have you lurching around London like the monster. I can walk like Victor. Better, but he's still not your common everyday street urchin that the world chooses to ignore. Right. The people of London, the ones we're going to be walking around, are not in control of their lives. They want to be, but they know they aren't. Your walk has to reflect that. You need... You need to feel like there's a weight pressing down on you, and a rope pulling you forward. It's like you keep moving so you don't collapse and die in the gutter. The ones with pride attract attention to themselves. We can't be that right now, so just do this. He loped again, kept his head down, kept his movements light, and adopted something of a scowl. Good lord, how do they find the energy to get out of bed in the morning? If they want to feed their families, they find the energy. Simple as that, so no more swagger, not until you're back home. The Princess Thieves is available on Bandcamp, priced at $12. If you love modern Disney and the way we frame our podcasts, you will love this. Pronounce your frog and wife. Get to it, hop along. Give your lovely bride some sugar. Congratulations. There's, there's not one bad song in this film. There's not one Duff character. It doesn't have a dull moment. It's... Well, we don't use the P word on this show, but... Maybe a little too perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's so clean. It's so, you know, precise at the same time. It's this in incredibly intricate dance played out flawlessly in front of you. Um, it's, a, it's a treat. 
It is. And and I felt while watching it that same swell of emotion that you described at the beginning, the sort of mix of joy at this at just being in love with this movie and sadness at knowing that this didn't kickstart what it was trying to do, that it mm. ultimately failed. But by the time I got to the end of the movie, like after kind of feeling heartbroken watching it for a while, I started actually feeling a little differently. Like so let's just say that this was it. Hand-drawn Disney animation is done and it doesn't come back. The studio moves on to just keep making great films using modern tools. And Princess and the Frog and oh, 2011's Winnie the Pooh were the curtain call encore the of Disney as it used to be. Yeah, with, uh, if that is Snow the White case. On the other side. So this is where now several films into the second volume, if you will. Yeah. But if that is the case, I am so happy that this is how classic hand-drawn Disney animation got to end. Because yeah. if this is how they close the chapter for good, let it be on a high note like this and not the slow, gasping collapse we saw at the end of the Renaissance. Freaking home on the range. Yeah. If that had been the last one, that is a shame. For shame. Yeah, like that, I would not have wanted... like. The end of Disney 2D had felt like a sad, depressing thing as we were watching it happen, watching it take place. And when we heard that Princess and the Frog, like Disney 2D was coming back, like we overjoyed. Like I was super excited and so thrilled. And I'm sad that that didn't get things back going again, but I'm so glad we got this at least. It did succeed in kickstarting the Disney revival, though, if nothing else. And as of this recording, there has not been a single weak Disney animated feature released since. Yeah. They've all been good. And this is how many films long? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. No, nine. Nine films so far that they ever, from Princess and the Frog to Moana, that are all great. That's an amazing hot streak. I don't even know if the Disney Renaissance quite hits that. Like, this revival may eclipse the renaissance of the 90s ultimately by the time it's done okay so i believe that will about do it for the princess and the frog unless there's anything else left to say it's a it was a brave and a joyful attempt to remind people why this kind of movie was special to them and considering it was the first proper princess story since aladdin and was then followed by the extremely popular Tangled and Frozen, that suggests, at least, that people will not tire of the story, even if they never flock to the animation style again. So, in one very significant way, it was a colossal failure. It's the resurrection of 2D. While, in some respects, it succeeded admirably. Whilst going hand-in-hand with Tangled, that was setting out to prove this sort of story could be done earnestly and twist those tropes without 2D animation. And we'll be back next week to talk about Tangled. And that's going to be another joyful... Just... A st- just I love this, I love this, I love this, I love this. <laughs> yes, it will. Because yes, it will. There's not a bum note in that one either. It's brilliant. Dan, thank you so, so much for coming on once again. Absolutely. And you can find Dan's work on his YouTube channel, New Frame Plus. School of Movies is funded by our loyal supporters on Patreon. And our $15 tier get a sponsor credit every episode, so a major thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, 
Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. If you guys ever get turned into frogs, our lips are yours. And just as an update on the bonus feed stuff that people have been listening to recently, we've had quick reviews on The House with the Clock in Its Walls, Crazy Witch Asians, The Nun, A Simple Favor, The Predator, Upgrade, Searching, The Incredibles 2, The Festival, Christopher Robin, Teen Titans Go to the Movies, Mission Impossible, Fallout, The Meg, Mamma Mia 2, Ocean's 8, Skyscraper, Marrowbone, Tag, Whitney, The First Purge, and we did one on The Great Gatsby. That's for all of you lovely folks who pay $5 a month to get extra bonus stuff. And it is, of course, you guys who keep this show going. We would have stopped this years ago were it not for you guys and Patreon. There are two spots left for our commission season for the late 2018 spot, so if you haven't talked to us yet about what show you'd like, get in touch right now. We will be back next week to talk about Tangled. Thank you again to our guest, Daniel Floyd. Thank you for having me very much. And I've been Alex Shaw. And I've been Sharon Shaw. And... School's out. Yeah, you're right.